Well, good evening. We are in chapter 4 of Ephesians. This is our third sermon in the second half, so to speak, the application part of Ephesians. The first three being the doctrine, this being the application of the doctrine. So we'll read verses 7 through 16. This is Ephesians 4. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Ephesians 4, verse, starting in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave himself some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined together, joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of every of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So last week, the theme was unity in the body that was modeled by the perfect and eternal unity in the Trinity. Tonight, the theme is the unifier of the body, specifically Christ, the unifier. He is the active agent who is unifying his body. He's working through us and in us. He is the power. He is the wisdom. He is the change agent. He is the reconciler. He's the mediator. He's the intercessor. He is the head of the body, the church on earth. Yet he transcends the things of earth, for he is the sustainer of the universe. After all, that's what Colossians Chapter 1 tells us, which reads, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's always encouraging to be reminded of the deity of Christ, especially when we consider the supernatural work of the second person of the Trinity right here in our verses tonight. He's always working all things together on earth and in heaven. He is limitless. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. And last week we saw in verses 4 through 6 one of the most powerful declarations of the unity of the Trinity. 
climaxing in verse 6, if you remember, which heralded the imminence and transcendence of Yahweh. It read, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7 then focuses back on the Son and His imminence and transcendent work. Verse 7 reading, But to each of us, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. These words suggest that God is portioning out different gifts to different believers. So no sooner has Paul spoken of this unity that he goes on to speak of the diversity in the area of gifts. And it is by his grace. So again, we see we can take no credit for these gifts. And we also must realize that these are not talents. These are gifts. No man or woman, however naturally talented, could ever minister these gifts without the Holy Spirit. These gifts are not the product of our own skill or ingenuity. These gifts are unique among the body of Christ. The gifts, these gifts are not to be used for our own glory, but for the benefit of the entire body. God ordaining these gifts and the grace to be perfectly varied among believers, to be perfectly measured to each individual. These gifts given once even come with the ability to exercise these gifts. And they are also intentionally given so that those in the body would be dependent on one another. Calvin put it this way. He said, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able without the assistance of others to supply his own necessities. So no matter how blessed a person is, no matter how blessed a body of people is, we still need each other for there to be unity with all our diverse gifts. So then the unity of the body results from the diversity of the body. But this is not the diversity that we hear in society today, is it? The world's diversity is a diversity that divides. It does not unite. The diversity of today usually means favoring someone based on their race or their sexual orientation and then pretending that they add value. That is not the godly diversity that Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians. God's not interested in the externals, and we shouldn't be either. You see, the unity of the body works hand in hand with the diversity of the body, and it's all for the edifying of the body. As 1 Corinthians reflects on this, it reads, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything and everyone. Romans as well. For just as we have been many members in one body... And all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, but having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Did you hear the unity in there? Did you hear the diversity of gifts in there? In other words, the diversity is not what's seen on the outside of the man or woman of God, but rather the application of your God-given gifts for the glory of of man's diversity says, look at me. But the diversity that Paul's speaking of here is for the glory of God. And it says, look to him. An orchestra can have unity in playing the same song. But that doesn't mean they're playing the same instruments. In the diversity of the instruments, you see they have their own place. They have their own timing. 
and, but they contribute to the unity of the song being performed. And so it is in the church. Unity among diversity. A unity that relies on a diversity of gifts. And here at Lakewood, we have a name for this. It's called Every Member Ministry. And foundational to Every Member Ministry is that this assembly, this church is not ours, but it belongs to Christ. And we as elders are just the under-shepherds of Christ to oversee what Christ has given us to all of us. So to use the gifts of the elders is not paramount, but the use of the gifts of the whole body, including the elders, is paramount. And it requires for this body to function as Christ intended, all of us utilizing our gifts. For we all have at least one gift for the edifying of the body, and we should all be serving with that gift. For all gifts are service gifts in the sense that no matter what the gift is, it's for the building up of the body to serve the body. And if we have members not utilizing their gifts, it throws us all out of tune. The edifying of the body is the sole purpose of these gifts. So now that we've seen to what ends these gifts are given, and to whom the gifts are given in verse 7, we'll now look at from whom these gifts are given. Verse 8, it reads, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We find here in in this verse, which Paul has quoted from, from Psalm 68, that amazingly, Christ is the gift giver. This is made evident by the rhetorical question posed by Paul in verse 9, when he says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, before clarifying the meaning of the lower parts of the earth, we must, we must first just address the discrepancy between Paul's rendering of Psalm 68 and Psalm 68 itself. And the difference here revolves around, on one hand, the receiving of gifts, and on the other hand, the giving of the gifts. So Psalm 68 states that Christ received gifts among men, while Ephesians 4 states that Christ gave gifts to men. This, of course, was intentional. For back in Psalm 68, Christ had the gifts, ready to give that he received from the Father. Then in Ephesians records, in God's perfect timing, he gave those gifts to believers for the edifying the church when he ascended. The other action performed when Christ ascended was leading captive a host of captives. And this, I believe, refers to the redeemed saints of the Old Testament that had been sent to Abraham's bosom when they died. And now Christ would then lead them captive to be carried to the throne of God, to be present with the Lord, as 2 Corinthians states. We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So just as to Paul's reference to the lower parts of the earth in verse 9, I don't think this is unclear. With some making the case that this lower parts is referring to hell or Hades, but I don't think there's any reason not to take the normal plain reading of the text being descriptive of the miracle of the incarnation of Christ on earth. The word became flesh. So verse 10 continues with, he who descended is himself also 
He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This harkens back to Ephesians 1, 23, which reads, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is expansive language that could only be true of a deity. A deity who cried, it is finished at the cross to buy our justification and who would go on to ascend to the position at the right hand of the Father as the risen and glorious one and then divinely intercede for his purchased saints whom he has given his gifts. He is the perfect sovereign ruling and reigning over all things. And how comforting it is for the believer to know that our Redeemer right now is unfailingly watching over, caring for, and defending us, his people. Armed with authority from the Father. After all, Jesus told us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I mean, can we not find rest and solace in such a promise, no matter what life throws at us? Now, let's talk about these gifts given to men. That's verses 11 to 12. And in reason, he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the first thing you notice here is that the gifts are actually people serving in their particular ministries that contribute to the church. This is not a church appointing people to positions based on their gifting, but rather Christ who's appointing people as the gifts, as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, as pastors, and as teachers. The last thing the body of believers needs is some psychobabble test like Myers-Briggs to determine where you should serve based on your personality. Only God knows, often using the weakest to do the greatest work. Think of the lowly shepherd boy David or the inarticulate Moses, or the timid Gideon. Now, I don't think Paul meant this list. It's only five. I don't think he meant this to be an exhaustive list. But notice these are all teaching gifts. These are gifts of communication. Since we all know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, so clearly the focus on teaching, preaching, and the spreading of the word. The focus here reflects a high view of Scripture. Now, it is also important to note that these five listed as gifts to the church are not offices and they're not positions, but rather men using their specific spiritual gifting. In other words, Christ has taken certain men who have been given certain gifts and he gives them, not the gifts, to the church. The first two gifting of believers are apostles and prophets. Now, although we do not have apostles and prophets today, We as a church are not deprived of the benefits of the apostles and prophets being gifted to the church since we have a record of their extensive teaching in the New Testament. Apostles and prophets were the spokespersons for God, their ministry ending when the foundation of the church was laid. Our next gifting given to the church, however, is active, and that is the evangelists. Defined as those who preach the euangelion, who preach the gospel, the good news of salvation. While apostles and prophets were confined to the apostolic age, evangelists are never to stop heralding the gospel. And there may be no such man more gifted as an evangelist than the apostle Paul himself, who told Timothy in 2 Timothy, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, 
Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You see, evangelists are the free agents of the gospel, taking the gospel to the world, armed only with Scripture and the Holy Spirit. The everlasting gospel of the evangelist echoes from Peter on the day of Pentecost all the way forward to the great tribulation when 144,000 evangelists are sent out. And we are called to evangelize. But our Lord has especially gifted some in his church for the work of evangelism. Now, the next category of gifting is pastors and teachers. And they are responsible for the day-to-day building up of the churches. These are those defined as local shepherds of assemblies who know their sheep and are responsible to care, to lead, defend, and feed the flock of God, but who are also responsible for proclaiming the word. Charles Hodge remarks, There is no evidence in Scripture that there was a set of men authorized to teach but not authorized to exhort. In verse 12, Paul then tells us the purpose of these gifted men given to the church. It reads, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We can actually see three functions of the giving of men with teaching gifts right here. Three functions. Number one, the equipping of the saints. Number two, the work of service. And number three, the building up of the body of Christ. So three functions that are organized in a sequence. One function established and necessary for the next function. The equipping or preparing of the saints must precede the work of service, which must precede the building up of the body of Christ. The equipping of the saints has in mind the purpose of perfectly providing the necessary tools through the diligent study of Scripture. You could say being a good Berean. This reminds us of 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. This word equip is so key to understand how God is preparing his people. The focus is not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of action, for the sake of the work of the ministry This was equipping with purpose. The same word is used in in Matthew 4 when James and John were preparing their nets, thus preparing for future work. This is the same sense here, that they're preparing for future work of service. Or stated another way, the work to serve the body. Only those first equipped, prepared by God's word, whose lives are transformed by the grace of God's truth, can enter into the work of service for the body. Jesus prayed for this in in John 17 when he said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Only then will this contribute to the third function, which is to the building up of the body of Christ. This being the maturing, the strengthening, the establishing, the transforming of the body of Christ into Christ's likeness. This building up leads us to verse 13, which reads, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, And of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. But you definitely get a sense here of the ascending in Paul's language, as if we've moved to a higher and more glorious goal, like we've left the foothills and now we're scaling the peaks 
in more rarefied air to take on even more exalted aims of the church. The first one we see here is the unity of the faith, which harkens back to the unity of spirit of the spirit we saw in verse 3. Thus bringing in not just the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, but the whole body being unified, one organism to the unity of faith. And this goal is not the false unity we hear about in ecumenism, which seeks to bring all faiths together of the world, or the false unity that gathers under the banner of sects and denominations, but rather this is a unity of faith gathered only under the only distinction that matters, and that's the headship of Christ. And notice as well that just after naming all these gifted men given to the church, that Paul is quick to proclaim unity, not clericalism. He's not focusing on some organizational chart with the apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors at the top and everybody else at the bottom, but rather the goal of unity of faith that recommends an attitude of every member ministry, united in faith, striving for the same goal together as one body, relying on each other as we, as we all administer our God-given gifts. Together, striving for the highest aim, as, as verse 13 continues, the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This verse describes what should be the goal of every Christian, achievement of which will, will not be reached in this lifetime. The until that began in verse 13 is a significant marker looking ahead to perfection. It's looking ahead to glory. Paul told us in Corinthians, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. What he's saying is at the rapture, we will be perfectly united. We will see him as he is. Thus, we will have full knowledge of the Son of God. We'll be brought to maturity, fully developed spiritually. Can you imagine that? We'll be fully developed spiritually as individuals and as the body of Christ. And we will be brought to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Talk about future blessings. To be brought into oneness as a body, united in faith, fully mature, Our spiritual development is complete and we'll be conformed to Christ. We will be morally like Christ. This is amazing language here. We'll be fully grown body, perfectly suited to serve the head, which is Christ. This is our destiny. Our mission now being to strive to that glorious end. Paul was keenly aware that he had not yet arrived at that end. Philippians 3 records, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We must press on in our earthly mission, diligently remaining in the word, serving the body, and steadfast in our resolve to keep the commandments of God until then when we receive full maturity and full conformity with Christ our head. This is the positive affirmation. Now Paul turns to the negative denial in verse 14. So verse 14 reads, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, 
by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know, William MacDonald, the commentator, had broken this verse down into three dangers as we look forward to our heavenly calling. The first one's immaturity. We see that as, as at the beginning of verse 14, so that we are no longer to be children, which speaks of us being undeveloped as Christians, holding to the elementary principles. Hebrews 5 speaks of this immaturity. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, not solid food. So we must make it a priority at all times to seek the infinite knowledge of the Son of God, of the revelation of God found in Scripture. The second danger is instability. That as children, we are tossed here and there with no firm foundation, which is Christ. As Paul recorded the Corinthians, he said, no, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ. So outside of a foundation in Christ, we see one's spiritual life as a bobber floating in a boiling sea, always tossed about and never firmly planted in the truth. The third danger is gullibility. It reads, children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No new believer is more in danger from the fierce wolves than when immature in the faith. It's a terrifying place to be. Susceptible to false teaching and to false teachers. And this text indicates that believers should graduate out of this vulnerable stage to a more excellent way, as verse 15 states. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is Christ. First, there must be no compromise, no watering down, no backing away from the truth, but rather, as the verse says, speaking the truth in love. The truth is hard. Why? Because it convicts and it condemns the guilty sinner. And it leaves no room for teaching that is outside of sound doctrine, even when spoken in love. Not spoken in the absence of truth, and not truth spoken in the absence of love, but truth spoken in love. For we are to love truth, live truth, and speak truth because our head Christ is truth. Verse 16 reads, From whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now here Paul expands that amazing picture of Christ as the head and the church as the body. Christ is the head leading with us as the body, as the body following, receiving from him our orders and from him our spiritual life. Further, we see the integration of the many parts of the body as we are held together by what every joint supplies. What a marvelous picture, showing that each believer has their own place and function and are perfectly and precisely measured and joined together with other believers by Christ, our head. For the ultimate and wonderful goal of causing growth of the body and for the building up of the body in love, meaning the body following the head will grow and be edified. 
by feeding on the apostles' teaching, on prayer, on breaking in bread and fellowship. So this divine body is a self-growing, self-sustaining body needing only the head, which is Christ, who provides all we need for growth and edification. He is the great unifier of the body. And ultimately, this is who we serve when we serve his body. So what is the big takeaway here? What is the big so what? It is if you love Christ, if you love his body and you serve his body and you want to be with this body. And I encourage you, if you're not serving, be intentional about serving. This is one of our distinctives here, that we have abundance of givers, not takers. And I've never personally seen a church where there's such a high percentage of people that say serve. So if you're not serving at this time, I would recommend be intentional about using your gifts for the edifying of the church. Plug in somewhere, maybe greeting, security, AV. You could cut some donuts, you could prepare the emblems, take out the garbage, music, luncheons, baby showers, fireplace. And I know most of you are serving, um, but every act of service matters. None of it is insignificant. They all contribute to minister to one another. But the point is all of us together using our gifts for the whole of the body, serving and giving. That is the proper response of saints who are equipped, of saints who are growing, filled with the full knowledge of our Lord, and of saints who are grounded in the word, and of saints who are maturing to be conformed to be like Christ. This is the opposite of personal ambition. This is the opposite of me first. This is humble service with a grateful heart with a peaceful heart, because it is pleasing to the Lord. So let that mark your life, a life of service, right here in the body that God has called to you to. And finally, be grateful. Be grateful to be of service to the Lord and one another. I can't say it better than Colossians 3. It reads, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's pray as Noel prepares to come back up for one last song. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the clarity of Scripture about the unity of the body being dependent on the diversity of the gifts to unify the body. We thank you, Lord, for the gifting of so many in this body that honor you and glorify you in, in what they do and how you have gifted them. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we go forward, that we would think of ways that we can serve you more, Lord, that you would work on our hearts, that we might serve you in unity of the spirit and unity of the body. We praise you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen.